I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Thank you, Claire. Uh, I'm Bernard. This is Tessa. Uh, I work at uh, this wonderful cultural institution in New York called the 92nd Street Y, where I'm director of something called the Poetry Center, which has been hosting a reading series since the late 1930s. And we've been recording those readings since the late 1940s. So we've got lots of good stuff, uh, including Eudora Welty. Uh, some context, historical context, is that Welty read twice at the Y across her career. The first reading was in 1953. She read stories from uh, her first collection. She read three stories, uh, Why Live at the P.O., Warren Path and Powerhouse. She went on to uh, record uh, for uh, Cadman Records. And then 32 years passed, uh, and she reads again in 1985. And she reads that night a story called The Wide Net, which is what we're going to be talking about tonight and hearing audio from. Uh, this is a story that was first published in Harper's Magazine in the early 1940s. And um, Tessa, why don't you say something about oh. the story and kick us off? Yeah, it's very poignant, isn't it, to think that this is a, she's 75 or something thereabouts, so quite an, well, not that elderly as I get close to that, but an, an elderly lady reading something she wrote 40 years earlier. And we were just talking downstairs about this interesting shape of Eudora's, Eudora Welty's writing life, that she's immense, she starts young, and she's immensely prolific for a couple of decades, and then for complex reasons, which we'll come back to if you like, uh, she, it, the, the, it sort of dries, it becomes a trickle in the 60s. There are a couple of significant stories in the 60s. There's a couple of novels, and then, and then nothing in the last decades of her life. Anyway, so this is her reading in her 70s, a story she'd written 40 years earlier, and I'm just going to read the opening of it to sort of start us off, and then Bernard and I, because I'm assuming that probably a few of you know all about her and will, will know all this, but some of you may not. I don't think she's hugely well-known over here, um, I, and I hope I'm not just addressing the initiated and you, you really... Anyway, fun to revisit some of the outlines. So I'll read the opening to this story, which is the one she read in 1985 with Harper Lee in the audience. You, you told me that. And um, then we'll talk a little bit about her and this collection, and then we'll play some more of the story so you can pick it up where, where I leave off, and we'll talk in a bit more detail about what it is that makes her worth so very worth revisiting and reading what a wonderful, special writer she is. And I am going to make no effort to put on a Mississippi accent whatsoever because, well, A, of course, because I can't do it, but secondly, because you're going to hear her own marvellous voice um, when she reads. 
the wide net. William Wallace Jameson's wife Hazel was going to have a baby. But this was October and it was six months away and she acted exactly as though it would be tomorrow. When he came in the room, she would not speak to him, but would look as straight at nothing as she could with her eyes glowing. If he only touched her, she stuck out her tongue or ran round the table. So one night, he went out with two of the boys down the road and stayed out all night. But that was the worst thing yet, because when he came home in the early morning, Hazel had vanished. He went through the house, not believing his eyes, balancing with both hands out, his yellow cowlick rising on end. And then he turned the kitchen inside out, looking for her, but it did no good. Then when he got back to the front room, he saw she had left him a little letter in an envelope. That was doing something behind someone's back. He took out the letter, pushed it open, held it out at a distance from his eyes. After one look, he was scared to read the exact words and he crushed the whole thing in his hand instantly. But what it had said was that she would not put up with him after that and was going to the river to drown herself. Drown herself? But she's in mortal fear of the water. He ran out front, his face red like the red plums hanging on the bushes there. And down in the road, he gave a loud shout for Virgil Thomas, who was just going in his own house to come out again. He could just see the edge of Virgil. He had almost got in. He had one foot inside the door. They met halfway between the farms under the shade tree. Haven't you had enough of the night? asked Virgil. There they were, their pants all covered with dust and dew, and they had had to carry the third man home flat between them. I've lost Hazel. She's vanished. She went to drown herself. Why, that ain't like Hazel, said Virgil. William Wallace reached out and shook him. You heard me? Don't you know we have to drag the river? Right this minute? You ain't got nothing to do until spring. Let me go set foot inside the house and speak to my mother and tell her a story, and I'll come back. This will take a wide net, said William Wallace. His eyebrows gathered, and he was talking to himself. That's how things begin. So there's a, there's a wise elder in, in this town who has a wide net that they have to go and persuade him to, to give them. And uh, she, uh, many of you probably know the story, but, but we've agreed not to uh, give away give away the ending until it's until given away it. by, yeah, Welty herself. Um, I think we should talk, tell them a little bit about the Natchez Trace. Please. Which I have found out. The Natchez Trace is where this story is set and where actually all the stories in this second collection of Welty's, which is called The Wide Net, that the title for the whole collection is the title of this story. And they're all set in the Natchez Trace, which is, I haven't been there, it's just in my imagination from reading, uh, an amazing path that comes all the way up out of Mississippi and then into Tennessee. And it was a path before there were human beings in America. It was an animal trail. And then it was prehistorically a path for early peoples in America. And it's gone on being used and now I believe parts of it are highway, and also you can cycle along it. It's, uh, this, it's this astonishing groove worn into the land, which is luscious with, with vegetation and flora and fauna and rivers and history. And all of these stories in this collection are set there. So, some of them contemporary to her writing, I think, like this one more or less. This is 1930s America, 1940s America. Um, I can't remember, do we have a mention of the war in here anywhere? I don't think we do, do we? Mm -mm. No, so, so who knows? But some of them are in the American past. One of the stories features, it's told through a deaf boy's perspective, but it features Aaron Burr, who was the man who shot Alexander Hamilton in the famous duel, which we now know more about because of the musical Hamilton. Um, in America, they knew all about that anyway, but we didn't. Um, 
And then another one of them has an extraordinary meeting on the trail between three historical figures. At least one of them is James Audubon, the great bird artist. The other one's certainly Lorenzo something or other that I've forgotten his second name, is a, was a real revivalist preacher. And then there's a, a sort of murderer, a highwayman, and the three of them converge on this incredible path. So what, her idea is, I think, that it's, it's like a sort of arterial center in something to do with the southern states of America. It's, it's got this history flowing along it. And you could, on the trace, it's as if you can make contact between these different layers of time. Should we hear her? Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, oh, well, let me, let me just fill in before the extract that we're going to listen to Eudora Welty read. What happens now is that William Wallace and his friend Virgil go to Doc, who is this expert Bernard talked about, who, um, you know, he's the wise man. He's full of wise sayings. In fact, he exasperates them with his pronouncements on everything. But he's rather wonderful, sort of Shakespearean, talking about the seasons and the birds and the trees. And he holds the wide net, and they ask him if they can borrow it. And meanwhile, they are accumulating people to help because this is quite a wide river, so the net's big. And so they get the Doyles, one family of great men, and they get the Malones, another family of big men. These are farmhands, farm workers. And they get two little white boys and two little black boys. And there's, there's this sort of procession, all very masculine, set off to docks and ask him for the loan of the wide net. And then we're just going to hear Eudora Welty read from where they set out along the river. Since the net was so wide, when it was all stretched, it reached from bank to bank of the Pearl River, and the weights would hold it all the way to the bottom. Jug-like sounds filled the air, splashes lifted in the sun, and the party began to move upstream. The Malones with great groans swam and pulled near the shore. The Doyles swam and pushed from behind with Virgil to tell them how to do it best. Grady and Brucey with his thread and pen trotted along the sandbars hauling buckets and lines. Sam and Robbie Bell, naked and bright, guided the old oilish rowboat that always drifted at the shore. And in it, sitting up tall with his hat on, was Doc. He went along without ever touching water and without ever taking his eyes off the net. William Wallace himself did everything, but most of the time he was out of sight, swimming about underwater or diving, and he had nothing to say anymore. The dogs chased up and down, in and out of the water and in and out of the woods. Don't let her get too heavy, boys, Doc intoned regularly every few minutes, and she won't let nothing through. She won't let nothing through. She won't let nothing through, chanted Sam and Robbie Bell, one in his front and one in his back. The sandbars were pink or violet drifts ahead. Where the light fell on the river in a wandering from shore to shore, it was leaf-shaped spangles that trembled softly while the dark of the river was calm. The willow trees leaned overhead on the muscadine vines, and their trailing leaves hung like waterfalls in the morning air. Every time Willet... William Wallace took hold of a big eel that slipped the net. The Malones all yelled, Wrestle with him, son. Don't let her get too heavy, boys, said Doc. This is hard on catfish, William Wallace said once. There were big and little fishes, dark and bright, that they caught, good ones and bad ones, the same old fish. This is more shoes than I ever saw got together in any store, said Virgil, when they emptied the net to the bottom. Get going, he shouted at the next breath. The little Rippins, who had stayed ahead in the woods, stayed ahead on the river. Brucey, leading them all, made small jumps and hops as he went. The winding river looked old sometimes when it ran wrinkled and deep under high banks where the roots of trees hung down, and sometimes it seemed to be only a young creek shining with the colors of wildflowers. Sometimes sandbars in the shapes of fishes lay nose to nose across, without the track of even a bird. Here come some alligators, said Virgil. Let's let them by. <laughs> they drew out on the shady side of the water and three big alligators and four middle-sized ones went by, taking their own time. Look at their great big old teeth, called a shrill voice. It was Grady, 
making his only outcry. And the alligators were not showing their teeth at all. The better to eat folks with, said Doc from his boat, looking at him severely. Doc, you are bound to declare all you know, said Berger. Get going. When they started off again, the first thing they caught in the net was the baby alligator. That's just what we wanted, cried the Malones. They set the little alligator down on a sandbar, and he squatted perfectly still. They could hardly tell when it was he started to move. They watched with set faces his incredible mechanics, while the dogs, after one bark, stood off in inquisitive humility until he winked. He's ours, shouted all the Malones. We're taking him home with us. He ain't nothing but a little old baby, said William Wallace. What are you going to do with him, asked Virgil. Keep him. I'd be more careful what I took out of this net, said Doc. Tie him up and throw him in the bucket, the Malones were saying to each other while Doc was saying, don't come running to me and ask me what to do when he gets big. <laughs> they kept catching more and more fish as if there was no end in sight. Look, a string of ladies' beads, said Virgil, but not anybody as we know. Here's Sam and Robbie Bell. Sam wore them around his head with a knot over his forehead and loops around his ears, and Robbie Bell walked behind and stared at them. In a shadowy place, something white blew up. It was a heron, and it went away over the dark treetops. William Wallace followed it with his eyes, and Brucey clapped his hands. But Virgil gave a sigh, as if he knew that when you go looking for what is lost, everything is a sign. And I don't, I, I don't know how closely you could follow that, but it ends with a heron flying, flying up, flying down. Is it flying, flying up? a white heron, and, and then it says Virgil sort of knows that everything you see when you're looking for something lost is a sign. And first of all, by the way, there is another white heron in that story I mentioned, which has Audubon, the bird artist, and the murderer, and the preacher all coming together. The white heron is crucial, and something terrible happens to it. Uh, so, But that feeling you get in Welty's work that it's always operating on two levels. Everything is a sign. This is both a real trip along a real river with a real net, and it's some kind of mysterious quest. Do you think that as well, Bernard? Yeah, and um, you get a sense from this story, which we'll try and piece together between audio, of um, this just being a, a great adventure. You've got, you've got the husband looking for his vanished wife, and his best friend who sort of feels guilty that they were out all night. And then you've got uh, the wizened elder and you've got the boys. And uh, one of the things Tessa was commenting on earlier is uh, everybody's just sort of free out on this adventure mm. on the Pearl River. And um, there's something archetypal going on with all these men of all ages. That's a really good point. The old man, Doc, with his title of wisdom, the little boys, black and white, and then the, the, the rather unspecified Doyles and Malones. This, this is the tribe of men, isn't it? Having their astonishing quest, and the, and the river is a real river, and they are going upstream on it. That's what, that's what they're doing, isn't it? Going upstream with the net. But it's, it's also, of course, that's the shape of a piece of fiction, and that's the shape of the story here. The river is the spine or the thread on which the story is strung. And yeah, and I mean, as I'm listening to I'm having two almost contradictory thoughts. One of which is how vividly, extraordinarily American it feels. I mean, something about she's, what is she doing so well? Catching the voices of these men talking to each other. They're, they're calling, they're teasing, the children shouting out, the men excited when they catch the baby alligator, and the doc sort of pronouncing cynically, I'd be careful what I took out of that river. So there's, there's a wonderful oral historian in Eudora Welty, capturing something very, very distinctively American. I can't imagine this story. You couldn't, you couldn't translate it anywhere else. The only place that for a moment, I wonder, 
Is it, is it got touches of, of something Singh might have done in Ireland? And it is interesting that these are Malones and Doyles. They're, they're, they're all Irish, aren't they? Not, not William Wallace. Do you think he's Scottish? Perhaps. Who knows why he's been given that wonderful heroic name. Um, so so may, there's possibly, but the sense that there's no hierarchy operative in this story. These men, they're poor and life's hard, but they're sort of, I actually found myself strangely thinking of the word free as they're out there on the river, you know, trawling for the dead woman. How sort of archetypal and strange is that? But there's, there's a marvelous freedom about it. They're making this great continent up as they go along. And though it's got the traces of past peoples and past history and the Natchez trace, at the same time, it does feel pristine, new, not written over and over like European landscapes are. But I was going to say, my, my other thought, while thinking how explicitly American the story is, it reminds me of lovely bluegrass music. Would that be sort of right? Or am I a bit too south for that? But some kind of lovely country tradition um, is that it's also kind of, it's, these are like hunter-gatherers out on some primal river, hunter-gathering men with their mysterious quest, collaborating, joshing, teasing, keeping each other in place, fishing, because one of the things they definitely end up with, um, we're not going to spoil things too much by saying they don't find Hazel's body anywhere in the river, they end up with an enormous amount of fish, and one thinks, well, are the Malones and the Doyles partly just along for the, you know, for the haul? So, yeah, there's, there, so those two things in play at once, something incredibly mythic. I mean, that's what this writer is up to. This is not just a cute little story of sweet people to condescend to. That's, that's the interesting edge one, that it's hard to convey. You could almost think at first it was quaint or cute, and if it was, we wouldn't like it. But isn't that? The, um, <clears throat> there's an audience Q&A after this story, and somebody who's, I think, grappling with similar ideas raises their hand and says, well, tell me more about the net. How do they maneuver that hmm. net? And she laughs and she says, well, she's never used a wide net, but she's heard it's been mm. done many times. Eudora Welty wrote a lovely book called One Writer's Beginnings. It's a very hidden book. This is not a writer who's going to tell you about her interior heart. No, she's not a confessional, but it's full of her heart, actually. It's a lovely book about her childhood and her starting to write. And she talks about how she loved to listen to the women talking and gossiping. Her mother didn't like it. She rather disapproved. Her mother was a wonderful, austere, very dignified, very proud character, very important in Welty's life. But Welty herself loved to hide and just eavesdrop. Now, and that's, um, uh, that's very connected to what you've just said. This is, these stories are all made out of fragments that she's picked up here, picked up there, picked up in the other place, yeah. which are then, I mean, it's, this is not oral history. This is the most sophisticated modernist art, but somewhere she's bridging an extraordinary divide because it's also oral history. These, these are pieces of stuff she heard about the wide net. Other stories based on something she heard, something somebody told, something somebody said. You were telling me a, a memoir of one of the men who was her close friends, his grandfather's memoirs. She, she is finding the stuff in the culture that surrounds her in Jackson, Mississippi, where she passes almost all of her extremely long life, mostly in the same house, the house where she grew up as a child. Um, she... Place and her art have this marvellous symbiosis, which is, again, I almost can't imagine an equivalent somehow in European culture. Perhaps that's, that's not quite fair. And again, maybe we could think of Ireland as a possible analogy. She, uh, she called it uh, the murmuring of voices when she was a little girl. Mm. She, 
got sent home from school with what doctors or someone diagnosed as a fast beating heart. And she spent several months in her parents' bed reading. And she loved ah, just the illness one to longs them. to be diagnosed with, aged 10. <laughs> her father loved opera, and, and uh, her mother foisted Dickens on her. And um, Yes, they were great readers. Should we, should we back up and talk a bit more about her development as a, a writer? I, I'll set this, this stage by quoting, in the last couple of decades of her life, she, she didn't write so much, but she would travel around collecting uh, honorary degrees. And at one point, the president of Dartmouth, when he's going to give her an award, says this, Eudora Welty has taught us that we have worlds to learn from a woman who has never married, rarely traveled, and still lives in the home in which she spent her childhood. Um, the, the, the first thing that he says that she never married is true. The, the last thing is, is also true, but rarely traveled is not. And no, I think we should, we should maybe talk a bit more about her development uh, as a writer. Um, so it's remarkable how early she starts, and, and she was also a photographer, and I'm sure life could have taken her that way. So they're a marvelous, rather Walker Evans-ish photographs of the South. I mean, there's a lovely one on front of this cotton picking. Yeah, in 1935, she was uh, employed by the WPA as part of the New Deal, and was going around Mississippi taking pictures of, of people, mostly African-Americans, who were involved in other New Deal programs. And when she was trying to get stories published in uh, the early 30s, she would, she would send, she thought it might entice the, the publishers, portfolios of her photos along with the, her story. She took photography very seriously, which was a, an art that she was given by her, her father who, um, who died who died of leukemia early in, in her life. Um, but she, she makes it to the University of Wisconsin to study, and then she goes to New York City to get an admin secretarial degree kind of master's at the business school of Columbia. She says in an interview somewhere that all of her friends at Columbia were studying literature or, or, or more serious subjects. And she was happy to be in the business school. She was in the business school because her parents had said, though she knew she always wanted to be a writer, if, if you can get a job, you can write on the side. And she thought it would be easier to be in business somehow than uh, to be a teacher. She thought if she were a teacher, it would be harder to write on the side. But she says this year in, in uh, in New York City while she's at business school at Columbia uh, was one of the happiest years of, of her life. She, um, she didn't have a lot of work. Uh, she was the one who went and got the theater tickets, she says, because all her friends had to be in class. She's, she's a joyous person, isn't she? And that's not to simplify someone who had, all, who had real darkness in them. And even in this very joyous story, there's, there are real underwater darknesses. Um, but she is a, a life-enhancing pleasure-taker. She, she loves friends, she loves theater, loves her family, loves the South, loves visual, the visual. I mean, that's one of the things in the extract we listen to. Just that it seems as if the, the 30s for me and the, maybe the 40s and 50s and the 20s were, were a great time for writers sort of taking advantage of the liberation of modernism and shaking off the, the narrative forms of the 19th century, great as those were, and using the new freedom with words to make pictures in front of our eyes. I mean, her descriptive writing, although that, that's a ghastly phrase and that isn't quite how it feels when you read it, but her description of the river, you remember what was that? lovely bit. Um, 
In fact, she even misses out a little bit of it. She's sort of cutting as she reads. The willow trees leaned overhead under muscadine vines, and their trailing leaves hung like waterfalls in the morning air. Oh, um, and I've missed out, actually, the bit I wanted. Sorry. The sandbars were pink or violet drifts ahead. When the, where the light fell on the river in a wandering from shore to shore, it was leaf-shaped spangles that trembled softly while the dark of the river was calm. You, that's, you couldn't have written that sentence in the 19th century. And suddenly this becomes possible in the 30s and the 40s, this sort of daring impressionism with language. And she deploys it in the service of her very, very visual sense of the world, that that's, that's her first responsibility, is to make us see that complex thing there. The light's falling on the river, but it's the leaf-shaped spangles of light that tremble. The dark of, and when, when one's read it, you can see that. We've all seen it, but how precise and how exact. But always with wealthy, it's never just, ha, huh, I'll describe the morning to you. Now I'll get on with the story and how people feel. There's a sort of permeability between the visual surrounding the place, the physicality of people, and their psychology and their feelings and their, their, their responses, as if, I don't know, she's marvellous at conjuring presence in her stories. As you read, you have to slow right down. You can't just read for the story. You won't get anything. You have to slow right down, and then you become there. You're in that space, seeing that colour, that precise thing. And, and the, the place isn't, isn't a backdrop. It's also your interior. That wonderful bit, Bernard, that you read to me earlier. Where is that That's bit where he goes right? What? No, I'm not going to get that page, am I? Oh, I'll read it from your book. This is a little bit later on when they just, they're carrying on down the river. I mean, what happens is, really, it is just hunter-gathering tribe, men on a quest. They're, all of them set out along the river. Um, the Malones and the Doyles are trawling this wide net across the river, hoping, or not hoping, who knows, to find Hazel's body, drowned Hazel's body. Though one wonders, do any of them really expect it? Who knows? It's a mythic quest. Who, who knows what they would answer if you asked them what they expected? Doc is rowed by the two little black boys coming behind in a boat. And unlike all of the rest of them, who were almost naked quite quickly in the hot day, Doc keeps his top hat and his tailcoat on the whole time. Um, anyway, so they, they, they go on down the river. We, we read about them fishing. They find the alligator. At some point... How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. 
They stop on a sandbar, they cook fish, they eat, they almost sleep, and then there's a mad moment when William Wallace sort of loses it and starts laughing and jumping about. But here is a marvellous little section that embodies perfectly what I was trying to say about how the visuals and the physicality of the place are simply inseparable from the interior experience of the characters. So this is William Wallace diving down while they push the net along the river. He keeps in and out of the water, diving in and out. All day, William Wallace kept diving to the bottom. Once he dived down and down into the dark water, where it was so still that nothing stirred, not even a fish, and so dark that it was no longer the muddy world of the upper river, but the dark, clear world of deepness. And he must have believed that this was the deepest place in the whole Pearl River. And if she was not here, she would not be anywhere. He was gone such a long time that the others stared hard at the surface of the water through which the bubbles came from below. So far down and all alone, had he found Hazel? Had he suspected down there, like some secret, the real the true trouble that Hazel had fallen into, about which words in a letter could not speak. How she had been filled to the brim with that elation that they all remembered, like their own secret. The elation that comes of great hopes and changes, sometimes simply of the harvest time, that comes with a little course of its own, like a tune to run in the head. And there was nothing she could do about it. They knew. And so it had turned into this. It could be nothing but the old trouble that William Wallace was finding out, reaching and turning in the gloom of such depths. And when we were talking about that passage downstairs, Bernard brilliantly said, of course, in a peculiar way, he's actually enacting Hazel's pregnancy there. Not quite, well, no, almost explicitly, actually. There he is, down in the deeps of the river, swimming about in the amniotic fluid of the water. These men in search of the missing woman, the lost girl. And they're sort of, it, it's both the bottom of a real river that they're swimming in, and it's mythic. She's, she makes that move all the time across from the particulars of a moment in a place and time into questions about what is it like what are we doing here and what is it like to be here and what is it like to be these men and that woman alive in this moment and also in Hazel's case suddenly finding that she's going to give birth to a new life it's also shrouded in a kind of mystery that pulls you along you can't quite place your finger on and and that passage in particular reminds me when she was uh, just starting out before she'd been published she wrote she wrote a fan letter to Virginia Woolf about uh, to the lighthouse and she she's quoted as saying it dissolved all the sediment of my loneliness of my dull days into a perfect amorphous stream of motion and intensity that flows clear and penetrative over the mosaic of my imagination or perhaps yours. That's the kind of fan letter you want, isn't it? <laughs> but that she ends with, it was light under a door I shall never open. Oh. How lovely. That's a, that's a, I mean, that's lovely. And that's, it's just got her qualities in it and that sense that what writing does for wealthy is dispense with the, the problematic skin that stops us being present in the moment and I, I yeah the time in her stories is so strange it, it it's very vivid that time is passing we begin after the night out with the loss of hazel you're going to hear in a moment how it ends but the river marks the passage of strange time through a significant day but at the same time of course it feels timeless and it feels as if it's a a mythic happening that perhaps has been done over and over again, and they're participating in something that isn't just once and once only. Before we, before we get to the end of the story, I think 
Um, Tessa, I would like to hear from you. I think some of these people would be interested too. I hope all of them. In how you first came to Welty, you've also... Uh, we, we know there's at least one recent story that you say was in a kind of dialogue with the Welty story, but also what it's been like to teach her. Mm. Um, so starting with, how did you first come to Welty's work? I'm not even sure I can actually remember. That's shrouded in myth, possibly through Alice Munro. I think that might have been it. She particularly loves, and I love too, the next collection that well they, they were pouring out of her these stories in the fifth, in the thirties and well in the forties and fifties really. She wrote the wide net eight stories in a year. Just astonishing, and these are long, deep, complex stories, just like what you've been listening to. The Golden Apples is the next collection, and I have a hunch that it's probably also her best novel. She she was a novelist, and I neither Bennett Bernard and I have read them all. Her last novel, I sound so I'm digressing madly, but I'm going to come back, is called The Optimist Daughter, and that's a marvel. I so recommend it. But it's almost like a novella, and that's very late in this period when she's really not writing much, and it's sort of running out, or she can't write anymore or something. But The Optimist Daughter is superb. But the other novels that I've read, are, they feel almost like overextended stories, perhaps. But, you know, remains to be seen, because I haven't read them all. Golden Apples is a series of linked short stories, all set in one town, Morgana, in Mississippi, and uh, with the same characters. They begin as Virgie Rainey, who's this sort of, I don't know, perhaps the central performer, begins as a little girl, and she's a 40-year-old woman by the end, and different configurations. They, all, they do work as separate freestanding stories as well. So I know that Alice Munro loves Golden Apples. And that, maybe that's why I... Sorry, that was a long answer to a question. How I got there. And I... And I um, it's funny, preparing for this today, because she hadn't read anything from Golden Apples, which, because it's more interior, it's, a, it, it's, it's more about complex individuals whose intricate inner lives one can identify with in a, in a more usual way. I have preferred that. And I found these stories with their odd collection of people dragging. I found them more, more difficult. And then suddenly I'm totally in love with them. And I've completely changed. You know, I haven't, I haven't stopped liking Golden Apples, but I'm loving these strange, more arm's length stories every bit as much. So it's been lovely to do that, actually. And teaching her work? Oh, really? great because it's difficult stuff actually it really is I mean those writers it was a lovely moment for writers in the 30s and 40s 20s when you could ask anything of your audience extraordinary what sophisticated I mean she was published and immediately selling loads and everyone was loving it and hailing her and you said the reviews were a bit more iffy but I I, I, I it was astonishing there was Faulkner who she said was like living near a mountain. And he's, he's a difficult, fawny, um, um, astonishing writer. Much, I mean, I, I, I find her more congenial. He's, he's looming and morose and yet, and yet marvelous. So, you know, does Joyce start it? Or is it James or what? But this, this lovely, Freedom to be difficult, I suppose, is what I'm talking about. We, and we don't have it now. It, it's not because that moment stopped. It ran out. We needed to be plain. Writers needed to write more plainly, I think. That just was the zeitgeist. It was, the, it was history, and it was right. But one can occasionally envy these writers, their huge freedom to, to be experimental in their sentences and take that risk of trying to catch in difficult words what a sensation was or a place was or what was happening between two people. I can't even remember why I started saying that, but... Well, I, I'm... Teach, yeah. Teaching. And bringing this difficult stuff before my students, I was afraid that they just wouldn't like it. But I have learned over the years that that's, one should always trust the students. And it's gone down immensely well. I've, I've had so many converts. 
I've had people do extraordinary things. This is a creative writing course rather than a literature course and uh, that I teach on. There's a beautiful story called Moon Lake in Golden Apples about little girls on a sort of summer camp. And I've had students do extraordinary things like rewrite that story, but in their own way, slightly differently, which I think is how you learn to write. You know, that's what you do. And so it's, it's been transformative. She's gone down marvelously well. And I know uh, the third part of this was you gave an interview to The New Yorker where you said that on Saturday morning, which is a story in your latest collection, was written at a moment or started, or you'll, you'll tell us, uh, at a time when you were reading and, and teaching mm, uh, June Recital. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, well, and Moonlake as well, actually. I, I'm curious to yeah. know, I mean, in, in, in specific regard to how your story begins to emerge from, in part, that reading, but also how, how you as a writer tend to operate if, if you tend to, as, as, as Welty would have, derive a lot of inspiration, obviously from one's surroundings, but uh, from what you're reading? I mean, hugely, but only a few people. So most people, I, I, I would never do that thing that some writers say they do where they stop reading while they're writing, because reading is everything. And anyway, I'm always writing, so I would never read, and that, that would be just terrible. But there are only a few writers who come close to your own work. The others, it's, you love them sometimes. The, they are sometimes your heroes, and you so admire what they do and the way they do it, but they don't bleed into your own practice. And there are just a few of those, and she has become one of those. Um, and I do, I mean, I think, I think maybe one has to be a little wary of her influence. Just because of that thing I was trying to say about how then the sentence could be long and slow and drifting. And that's not quite how to find your true sentence now. Something's changed. Something's shifted in the frame or the relation between writer and material and audience. That triangle has just skewed a little. It's different. So, so maybe I would be where I'm wary of the lushness, something luxuriant and lush. Maybe that's partly also just Mississippi as opposed to London or Cardiff, where I, I can't even remember where I... No, that was probably London where I wrote that story. But she's, a, she's, she's one of those writers who is so inspiring. When I sit down to my desk, actually, if I've been on the phone or washing up or doing emails or something, cross that threshold into the writing space, which is so much more serious. Uh, sometimes one feels stupid as you cross it. You have to lift your game to read a bit of Elizabeth Bowen, who was a friend of Welty's, or Welty, or Alice Munro, to see how they don't waste anything. Nothing must be wasted. Every sentence must be that good. It's sort of that's a brilliant bridge across into doing one's own work, even of course with all due modesty. Should we? We should catch them up on. Yes. So they arrive. They arrive at Dover, which is the end of their upstream hall. They haven't found Hazel. There are marvellous scenes in Dover in which, apart from anything else, Hazel's mother comes out and accuses them of all sorts, but no trace of what's happened to Hazel. And they, are, they literally process through the town twice, carrying these astonishing strings of fish, and the little boys, the little black boys, chanting behind Doc, who's still wearing his top hat. And then someone comes out and said, how much do you want to sell this fish for? And William Wallace, in a sort of tragic gesture, says, you can have it for free. And then they go home, he and Virgil. He and Virgil have a fight on the way home. We haven't talked about violence in the story, actually, but that's <coughs> But we're going to come to some more violence in the final section. And they have a fight. They dust themselves down. They shake. They don't know that they literally shake hands. That's very English, but they, they make friends. And then William Wallace enters his own house. 
and this is the end. He went up on the porch and in at the door, and all exhausted, he had walked through the front room and into the kitchen when he heard his name called. After a moment, he smiled, as if no matter what he might have hoped for in, the, in his wildest heart, it was better than that to hear his name called out in the house. Then she opened the bedroom door with the lamp in her hand, and there she stood. She was not changed a bit. How do you feel, he said. I feel pretty good, not too good, Hazel said, looking mysterious. <laughs> I cut my foot, said William Wallace, taking his shoe off so she could see the blood. How in the world did you do that, she cried with a step back, dragging the river. <laughs> but it don't hurt any longer. You ought to have been more careful, she said. Supper's ready, and I wondered if you'd ever come home. Or it would be last night all over again. Go and make yourself fit to be seen, she said, and ran away from him. After supper, they sat on the front steps a while. Where were you this morning when I came in, asked William Wallace, when they were ready to go in the house. I was hiding, she said. I was still writing on the letter, and then you tore it up. Did you watch me while I was reading it? Yes, and you could have put out your hand and touched me. I was so close. I was just behind the pantry door. But he bit his lip and gave her a little, gave her a little padding slap and pulled it to him and spanked her. Do you think you'll do it again, he asked. I'll tell my mother on you for this. Will you do it again? No, she cried. Then pick yourself up off my knee. It was just as if he had chased her and captured her again. She lay smiling in the crook of his arm. It was the same as any other chase in the end. I will do it again if I get ready, she said. <laughs> Next time will be different, too. Then she was ready to go in and rose up and looked out from the top step out across their yard where the china tree was and beyond into the dark fields where the lightning bugs flickered away. He climbed to his feet, too, and stood beside her with a frown on his face, trying to look where she looked. And after a few minutes, she took him by the hand and led him into the house, smiling as if she was smiling down on him. Thank you very much. What really interests me is that maybe we should be feeling uncomfortable with it now because Hazel gets spanked, but something in me just refuses to. I feel like Hazel gets the last word, and it, it fascinates Welty. This war between the sexes is such a perennial theme in all the stories, and what's masculine and what's feminine, and this kind of extraordinary, ritualized, pointless masculine quest along the river. There's such comedy in it as well as sympathy, and then he gets home, and Hazel's just waiting there. So. I can't, I can't feel upset on her behalf, and yet I take it on board. That's a fact. That's the pattern as it plays out. She teases him. She has him wound out doing exactly what she wanted. He makes a fool of himself. She stays at the center knowing what's what, and then he beats her for it. And that was a millennial pattern. It happens in other wealthy stories too. Happened in a Stranger Rumor Goddard novel I, I read recently, where maybe it was more problematic. A lovely coming together, finally at the end of a long, gorgeous novel of the, the man and the woman who must marry. And then at the end, he has to hit her. And you're thinking, ah, that's not going to play right now. But, but how interesting that that's a millennial pattern inscribed there into the scene. That's only one thing. I mean, I'm almost embarrassed bringing it up. Because one's so sure that Hazel's in charge. I like, uh, yeah, I think she's in charge too. He, like a little boy, he walks into the house. Yeah, he, he exactly. has to take off his shoe yeah. and, and, and show her. Yeah. <gasps> Poor old Hazel, yeah, he's the little boy who wants his mummy to sympathize with his foot and all of that, yeah. And she says, no, no, I won't do it again, I won't. And then as soon as he's let her go, she said, well, I will do it again, it'll be different next time. So he'll be playing that game as men perennially do. He'll be playing the last game while Hazel's ahead of him with the new one. 
Yeah, that was very interesting. I, th I think I have a feeling that in the 60s, she writes two very powerful stories about violence against blacks in the South, one of which is about the actual famous killing of Meagher Evans. And then I think politics caught up with her, and she, I'm, I'm only imagining this, but we were talking about it a little bit earlier, and maybe this is a very tentative suggestion, actually, not a certainty at all, but some sense that the delicate fabric of violence and oppression, primarily between blacks and whites in the South, also between men and women, something happened in the 60s so that all of that was torn down, and the, the delicate net of her writing, which were always on the side of the good and the angels, but nonetheless, they, they became unworkable in a newer, brasher, changing world. And she, that's why I suspect she was stuck quite for what to write. I don't think she could have written that South with the same, if I call it innocence, that sounds like a bad thing. Nobody should be innocent about it, but with the same freshness and freedom that she has there. Let's take questions. Um, hello. I'm just interested in um, the last comments you made, particularly about the relationship between the sexes. Mm. And I was wondering, do you think that, that was a deliberate influence on your own writing and the way that you write about kind of gender politics and the rhythms of relationships? Well, I think if I had anybody, the end of my story is being smacked by her husband. <laughs> Either they'd be into S&M or I'd be in big trouble. So, but of course, that whole millennial history of patterns of power, which, you know, that, that, how is that not so interesting? How is it not so interesting? And then how we're rewriting those now with an extraordinary radicalism that, that we almost, because we're living in it, can't perceive how new it is that old patterns and old stories about men and women and power have been broken up. And that, that reads with, uh, I'm saying this as no kind of reservation, but that reads like an old story. Men have the ostensible power and they hit, but women have the secret power of motherhood. Now, I, we are very wary of that story now, very wary. But at the same time, we mustn't write off thousands of years of women having that power. We mustn't write it off. That's, that's so condescending to the past. Thank you very much for that talk. It was very interesting. Um, I think it's kind of a pity, really, to apply our political correctnesses and analysis and these senses of human relationships um, to Eudora Welty because her magic is making them terribly funny. And uh -huh. you say that we as readers all take ages and we reread each sentence and all that. She, she reads her own work very quickly and makes mm. it all the funnier mm. because mm. of it. She treats it very lightly. Perhaps. And she said somewhere, I think I've just read that today, she said that she liked doing the comedy best of all. And we haven't talked, you're, you're quite right, we haven't talked no, enough haven't about how... Funny. No, no, we haven't. No, just and she's definitely been... southern funny, too. She hmm. can't muddle her up with the northern, no, North no. American writers, no. even of her own yeah. generation. And maybe also you could comment on who else besides Elizabeth Byrne were her chums, her literary chums. Um, she did have correspondence with Wolf. Did they, they meet Bernard? No, Catherine Ann Porter was... was Catherine Ann Porter promoted her when Catherine Ann Porter was, was there before her, as it were, and wrote the introduction to her first collection. So she, I, I, don't, I can't muster at this moment exactly who she knew. She was very around and about. I mean, she loved William Maxwell, who was the, editor of the fiction editor of The New Yorker at that time and took lots of her stories. He's younger than her, but he's a writer as well, of course, and a novelist and short story writer. Uh, so they had a very close, lovely friendship and read each other. But you're, you're absolutely right that the one thing that just hasn't cropped up, but that has to be said, is how funny she is, along with all those other things that she also is, which is the best comedy always is. It's never, it's never less tragic than tragedy. Yeah. 
and and it's interesting you can hear the New York audience on the tape laughing I mean I think it was a little bit hard for you to hear partly because it's a, a 75 year old's voice and partly because of her accent and she's sort of a shy reader isn't she she's she, she's she's a, she's but but a delightful reader absolutely it's lovely yeah 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 and you can hear that she likes the talk the people's talk I mean that's her great gift is that ear for the the mimicry of I always think really Funny writers, a lovely thing if you can do it is catch people being funny. Not being funny for us to laugh at, but actually being funny for each other. I always think Joyce is marvellous at that. Joyce in Dubliners gets men being really witty, being really funny, and, and in Ulysses as well, and uh, yeah, and all the books. And I think she has that. So she gets there. It's, there are moments when I'm when I first listened to it, I thought, well, what are all these sophisticated New Yorkers doing? They are laughing at these poor Southerners. And, but the second time I listened to it, I didn't. I just had them enjoying it in exactly the way that you've... I think it's cultural. Come. I think it's cultural. We, we are not prepared. We, we look Shakespearean analysis and all the serious side. and It's all there because she's such a deep writer. Yeah. But yeah. they see it as entertaining. And I'm sure you're right that a lot of her huge popularity as a regional writer was people loving that she was in that tradition of local stories, regional writing, tall tales, fantastic anecdotes. Yeah. Yes, thanks. Uh, yes, in, um, in the short story At the Landing, the main character is Billy Floyd, which mm. name seems so similar to me to Huck Finn. And, um, you know, the point about Huckleberry Finn is that he brings disaster to every, or with what, you know, total bad news, a disaster. And you can imagine um, a few years later, uh, you really would dread to see a, a sort of 20-year-old Huckleberry wandering into town as this tall, mysterious stranger, because you know it's going to be, he's a creep, really. Um, and, um, yes, yeah, so, and also I was thinking about the, at the bit, it's a bit about the landing, you know, and Twain writes in um, Life on the Mississippi that uh, a man could easily be lynched if he was seen carrying a shovel during a thunderstorm because if you shorten the river, the Mississippi, uh, by just um, oh. shovel width, um, you could um, That was it's so fascinating that you've... Because I was just thinking about Twain when I was reading the last story in this collection, which is perhaps the least funny. It's, the most, it's a very tragic story actually with violence and rape in it um, it's about a little township that's been left behind by the Mississippi and I remember learning about that from Twain whatever that lovely memoir is called life from the steamboat on the Mississippi or whatever it is where he talks about how the meanders get cut off eventually and these little towns that have been riverside towns suddenly aren't riverside anymore and that's exactly I mean that's such a wealthy subject yeah Huck Finn, I've always loved Huck and wanted him to come to town. He's, he's sort of like a wonderful light shedder, though he doesn't know he's doing it. Yeah, but Twain and Welty, that's a, I mean, a powerful, potent connection. And they are both great comic writers, as but, well as tragic writers. But you agree with me in the Twain's book, um, he does bring disaster to every place he, he, he goes to. And he, butter wouldn't melt in his mouth, you know, he's forgotten about it the next day. Complete disaster. How many people does he kill in that book? Dozens. <laughs> okay, I've, I have to revisit Huckleberry Finn. I've always thought of him as an innocent, actually being just buffered. No, maybe, maybe it's, but, but he's, he's, he, he steers even, but not, he thinks he's a bad boy. But in fact, all the time, he is making the right call, isn't he? About escaped slave Jim, for instance where he keeps saying, I know I'm a bad boy, I should hand him in, I should hand him in, they'd all condemn me for not handing him in, but I can't, because he's my friend, and Twain means us, of course, to be enthused for Huck's restraint. Welty loves that term, uh, grotesque, something mm, uh, mm, that you, a self-important self person, mm. who um, actually is ambiguously bad news. I mean, why are the, the PO, for example, um, What's her name? Sister, the, the main character. Um, they did a psych psychology, 
weekend, full of psychologists, because they're wondering if she was if she was crazy or not, you know. Um, and so but everybody in wealthy stories is like that. They, they, I mean, and and I, one feels this isn't something a writer's making up. There is always this lovely relationship between any writer and the world they are, they come out of and are writing about. And this is a world of heightened personalities and exaggerated performances, just as Huckleberry Finn's world is as well. It's the same world. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, grotesques. Only wonderful entertainment too. If she had any significant meetings with Marianne Moore, the poet, Ah. And what they thought of each other. That's one for Bernard. I don't know. What a good answer. question, though. No. I'm immediately curious. Or Elizabeth Bishop, for that matter. Yes. Did, did Bishop read? Does anybody know? Yeah, I don't. I don't know the answer. No. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of north and south, aren't they? Her yeah. And and actually, to me, I'm immediately thinking more. Maybe just because I get on with. I find I love Marianne more, but I find her very difficult. Mm. Elizabeth Bishop. One thinks that that the wealthy stories would really appeal to her, although... Yes, she did talk about her. Ah, oh, fascinating. I'm trying to remember where I can't remember. Bishop definitely talked about her. Talked about, oh, yes. I shall try and chase that up. Mm-hmm. Really interesting. Yeah. I mean, stylistically, Bishop is austere everywhere that wealthy is luxuriant, which, you know, one doesn't want to be cliched about it, but that does sound like Nova Scotia and the, and the North yes. as opposed to Mississippi. But... It's also the 60s and as opposed to the 40s. Yeah, fascinating. Thank that you. is a really good thought. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.